I've admired this guy's playing before we even knew each other, and then uh, finally got to meet each other and play some music, and it just kind of started this long-time relationship of playing gigs, and I can't wait to talk about our history, find out more about him, and then just talk about some of the fun things that we've done over the years. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce my pal, Mr. George Sandler. Hey, buddy. Howdy doody. Howdy doody. It's good to see you, Brad. You know, I remember the first gig we did together and it was just like, it was like peas and carrots. It really was. Um, it really was. You know, so you, you may not know this, but sometime back in years ago, I was playing some uh, in a, in a gospel group around Atlanta. Uh, we were playing around Atlanta Southeast and, and they had at some point gone and done a, done an album that you played drums on. Was and that, was that at Lamp? It probably was at Lamp. Lamp music. Wow. Yeah. This would have been in like mid to late nineties. What I think is at Lamp or David or David, what's his name? Studio up in Woodstock. I think, I, you know, yeah. So they brought the they brought the tracks back and we were listening to the tunes that we were going to learn from the from the record and I'm like oh my gosh who's that guy who's the tr- the drums sound so good so I was reading the credits on it and it was George Sandler oh man that's and, that's, and, that's sweet that's very sweet so then the so fast forward to and we'll talk about it later that those crazy few gigs that we played with Tim Purcell with the goat uh, I'm sure we can talk about that. Um, <laughs> I was I was uh, I was very nervous about playing with a gig with you. I was like, oh man, this guy is just gonna it's just gonna he's gonna think I'm a just a complete amateur. And we started playing, and man, it was just like love at first sight. Yeah, it was it so was. good. It truly was. And I remember you had that blue the blue music man. Yep, that's right. It, it, it was just like like well, I know I've. This I found my guy. <laughs> yeah. So along the way, after that, man, we we just found every excuse and every way in the world that we could play together. And I would say that with all the drummers that I've been lucky enough to play with uh, in my life, I've probably played with you more than anyone else. Well, I think you and I have played. We've played hundreds of gigs together. At least uh, maybe. <laughs> Thousand. That's no joke. Probably thousands of gigs we played together over the years. We've all we always looked for a reason to. Well, hey, what do you need? Well, I've got a bass player. Yeah, and it's the same same thing for me. Same thing for me. So, um, so as we're recording today, I see in the background, uh, see your one of your beautiful kits. Um, Do you have a studio at your at your place? I do. Um, Real fortunate to have a studio. In the basement, and actually, it's two rooms. This is the this is a drum set room, and then across the hall is my percussion room. And oh so, wow! And I can do. Uh, it's all linked up through the magic of the Bluetooth and the uh, uh, Cat Five cable. And so I've got yeah, I've got I've, I've got twenty four physical inputs in the studio. I, I usually record up to fifth up to fourteen or fifteen. Uh, drum stuff on the drum set you know i've got you know room mics and all that kind of stuff and then over there i've got uh mics on the kungas and mic on the percussion thing and overheads and mic on the uh i've got a a a gong bass drum of all things really yeah and then i've got a a djembe mic top and bottom so it's yeah it's it's really um i did the I did this because it was just like this room. We had this room down here and it was a, this is a, you know how they call it, like some rooms. If you don't have a closet, it can't be a bedroom. It's just a room. 
Right. This doesn't have a closet, but the room across has a closet. So at first I just had this. And then when the pandemic hit, I'm like, man, I need to drag the rototoms down. I need to get all this stuff down here and mic it up. And I had gotten a really great deal on an expander because I've got an X32. I got an expander, an X32 compact. So I have an expander on the other thing. I got a great deal on it and then just decided to, to make it. So, because we weren't doing anything in the pandemic, so well, and that uh, I imagine that makes number one, it uh, it opens you up to be able to pull to have a variety of instruments, obviously, Mm -hmm. and number two, it has to make life a lot easier because you're not having to break down a drum kit and then set everything back up. You Mm -hmm. just move over there, right? I just walk, just go over there. You know, I I used to record tambourine and on the two overheads above, but I'll just walk over there grab the iPad and grab the chart and switch, you know, switch it to the different bus over there. And then I can, I have a set of headphones and a little mixer over there that I've got for the mix. And I just play tambourine shake or whatever. And just, it's, I cannot say enough about, you know, what, 20 years ago, you there, you would have had, I had to have all kinds of things to do this. And now with Bluetooth and digital recording, I mean, I, I, you know, it's really cool. And I get to do it for clients um, you know, a lot of guys have rooms, but they don't have room for drums. Yeah. And so I've got a, you know, I've got a client in New Zealand, actually, that I cut drums for. Really? Uh, yeah. And you send it Dropbox and they pay you PayPal or Venmo and, you know, done and dusted. It's uh, That's it's great. Very cool. I would have never thought. And I'm still learning. I mean, I, I use logic and I, but I have to tell you, I'm probably Scratch, just scratching the surface on what I could do, but because I don't, I don't EQ anything. Well, I EQ the sub kick and I EQ the bottom snare mic. I, I put a little uh, high pass filter on the bottom snare mic to keep the kick out. On the uh, sub kick, I, I roll everything off above eighty, but everything else is flat as a board. And let them do whatever, whatever EQ they processing want. once they get at the tracks from you. Yep, 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 yep. And it's just been easy that way. I mean, somebody asked me, said, well, you should, what, what would you charge to mix? I'm like, man, I, that's, that is not my gift. Man, that, that is a, that is a whole other thing that, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I wouldn't even want to assume the responsibility of doing that. And, and you know, it is, it's, it, it is a whole, it is a different set of tools it is a, and, and it's a different ear though. Yeah. It's just like playing classical I, w- I love to play classical stuff, but it's a different set of chops. Yeah, it it is. Uh, it's a whole different thing. So, so you started. I'm assuming you started in a like middle school, elementary school playing percussion. Tucker Elementary School. Okay, Tucker uh, Elementary. In in uh, with Don Erdman was the band director. Was the director, and of course he jumped around to different schools in the in Perry. We lived in Perry, Georgia. And my dad and mom bought me an Acrylite. Yep. Okay. I still have it. It's out there on the right. I oh, have that's cool. Original Acrylite. And uh, started, uh, I remember, ba, ba, boom, bap, boom, bap. <laughs> and the Haskell Horror book where they the made, Hask- yes. made you hold it. It looked like you were trying to do the death grip on the sticks. <laughs> Did you? So, yeah, I started on the Haskell Horror book as well. That's where uh, that's where it started for me. Were you playing traditional grip with a tilted drum and everything? Or, or well, was it a flat snare drum? If I remember correctly, it was probably tilted forward, but it was, it was, uh, it was, I mean, you know, the, the, the picture they show in the Haskell Horror looks like the guy's choking the stick to death. <laughs> it really I, does. Yeah. It's just like, we well, can't get this thing to work. This is, and, um, I worked on it a little bit. 
I kind of gravitated when I started playing drums, I started gravitating more to match grip. And there's that debate. I just think that, you know, I, I love traditional grip and I, I still play it, especially if I'm doing brushes. Mm-hmm. But I'm a match grip guy, pretty much almost everything else. Well, and, and you know, we, we could probably spend the rest of our time today talking about the two schools of thought with that. And, and yeah, okay. there, there's a place for each. But for me, and I'm, I don't, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it, why utilize two different sets of muscles and try to make it sound the same? Uh, now, that yeah. said, that yeah. said, George, there are people like our former teacher, Mr. Jack Bell, who can just play like no one's business while playing traditional grip. So uh, there are, I think there are exceptions to it. However, yeah. for, for me, match grip always just worked better for me. I think also the, the, the logic that I always used is that the reason why they came up with traditional grip is because the, the, the drummers had that, they tilted their snare on their leg. And that's, right. that's how they had to do that. And the other thing that I always run into is like every other instrument may, unless you're playing the only time I would like, maybe if you're playing concert bass drum and you got to go over it like this, mm-hmm. but every other instrument utilizes a, some form of match grip, you know, French grip, whatever, but it's match grip. And it's, it's like you said, if you're wanting your hands to be similar or equal, you want to utilize the same muscle group. Now, what was funny is <laughs> you laugh I mean, it's funny you brought this up because I saw a video of Buddy Rich talking about it. He's like, well, that's all right if you're going around the drum kit. you But the left hand falls this way and the right hand falls. And I'm like, no, it really doesn't. But I get it. So, <laughs> you know, so whatever, man. Yeah, so, it's. Uh, I, I think that after we're dead and gone, people are still going to be having the conversation about the difference between using match and traditional grip. I, I agree. And. You know, you look at Dave Wickle and Dave, I mean, just f- does phenomenal things. But I've also seen video of Steve Gadd as of late playing match grip because, you know, him and Steve Smith, because as they say, as they get older, it's just easier. That, you know, I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, Dave moved back to St. Louis. Yeah, I heard that. But you could see, do you get to see him any? Yeah, I've gone to see him. He was... He was doing a, uh, he was kind of doing a tour warm up, and we went to see him, and it was like fifteen bucks to to see him play. It was so good, and he has a big band up here now. Man, he's when he played it um, at the Velvet Note with Osnoy, he was great, and he was real oh, nice. Yeah. Too. He was a real nice guy. Um, yeah, he's so good. So real nice guy. So he said, "You want a picture or anything?" And you know how I am. I'm like. No, man, I'm good. This, I, I save everything up here. I don't have to take pictures of everything. Yeah, that's it. Let me have an autograph, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys, man. He is he is still improving his craft. Just every t- every time you hear him, every you time. can tell he has something new in his toolbox, and it's it's just amazing. And it's scary. Yeah, it is scary. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. So so you I'm, so you moved to middle school. We're still playing. Um, did you? When did you? Did you have a private teacher during any of this? When I around uh, after seventh grade, uh, the way it was structured in Perry at the time was, and it was really weird. Some elementary schools went to sixth grade. Mine did as well. Yeah, some of them only went to fifth grade, and so the one I went to went to sixth grade, and then you for seventh grade you went to Perry Middle School. And Perry Middle School had sixth and seventh grade, but I only went there for seventh grade. And that was when I'm when Mr. Alford, when Bill Alford came and he 
took over the band program. And so after the seventh grade year, then you go to junior high school. It's not like that now, but junior high was eighth and ninth grade in Perry for some reason. I don't know why. Wow. That's the way it was. And then high school was 10th, 11th, and 12th grade in Houston County. So anyway, so junior high school, beginning of my eighth grade year, Mr. Alford said, have you thought about taking private lessons? And I was like, well, yeah, I'd like to. I don't know of anybody around here. And he said, well, I know a guy. His name is Ken Gallagher, and he's the principal percussionist for the Macon Symphony Orchestra. And so... Okay, and so we looked into it, and uh, he was teaching in Warner Robins, so that was the next next city over. And I started taking with, with him, and I was going through, went through the Haskell Hard Book 1 and 2, the rudiments, and then we started on the uh, Wilcox and 150, you know, yep. and, uh, that, and we did all that. And Ken, it was, it's so 70s, man. Ken would be in there smoking. <laughs> <laughs> In the studio, just smoking, and he'd play, and uh, he really helped me with my traditional grip better because he he taught me a little bit about it, about trying it. You're not clamping the stick down, and then we worked on timpani, and and I had made district all state all honor band and so forth, and then I um I think that was my ninth was it my ninth grade year? No, it was my tenth grade year. Um, I was still taking lessons with him, and I was marching in you know I was marching in the band at Perry. And I was what what I did do. What was really cool is the high school at Perry had this show called Showtime, and it was a musical review. And they did everything from Moon River to another opening up, and then all the way through current stuff. And it was a really big production. I mean, they had people dancing. They had they had at one point they had square dancers, the whole nine yards, and. They did it in the auditorium at Perry Elementary, which was just about to fall in. To be <laughs> it, was, it was bad. But uh, doing that, I got to do that my eighth grade year because the drummer at the high school had graduated and didn't have anybody else. And Mr. Alford wanted me to do it. And that, like, I, I had to play Stevie Wonder. I had to play, like I said, Moon River and just all stuff like that, uh, all that jazz. And that was really good training ground for learning just different stuff. Yeah. Had you been playing drum set a lot before that? I had been playing a little bit. Um, I, I had joined a band called Silver Sky. And, okay. But we had a band. It was a, it was a really weird. It had, it was a, we had a guitarist. We had a keyboard player. We had a bass clarinet, a sax, and a trumpet. The bass clarinet was the bass guitar. It was really it's really strange, but it was cute that we played like one of the songs we played was uh, the Eddie Money "Save It for a Rainy Day," but we they had written an arrangement for it, and it was it was we played a grand opening at this uh, shop at this little mall in Perry, and I was I was hooked. That's it, yeah. I was hooked. I was like, well, this is good. <laughs> and then we 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 pared it down to a three or four piece. And my dad was the pro at Perry Country Club, and we used to do play at the pool at Perry Country Club two or three times a year. Really? Yeah, man, it you were like, bitten. That was it. I was, I was all, I was like, and we, I think I got made fifty bucks or something like that, and I was like, oh, whoa, yeah. So, so that was that was it. That 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 was it. And so, yep. But yeah, and then the thing after that was. The next thing that happened, I was in high school and I went to see a drum corps show down in Valdosta. I saw Spirit of Atlanta, Skyriders, maybe Bridgman. I'm not sure. But I was just like, wow. And I went to the souvenir table and it's like, you know, you can audition for Spirit. And I was like, whoa. 
Okay. And I had been to Troy State University band camps two years in a row. And the first year I was like, it was not, I was had a lot of work to do. But the second year came back and I had practiced and I'd been, you know, I had worked on my hands and Ken had helped me in the whole nine yards. And so I was on that snare line for that camp with Sam. Oh my, I want, not Sam Douglas. I have to remember his name, but he was the percussion guy at Troy State. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, Sam, Sam, Samuel, Sam Frederick, Samuel Frederick. He was the percussion guy at Troy State. And uh, so I went and auditioned for Spirit and actually made it, (laughs) you know, and I was on the snare line for one day. I was, I was 15 years old. I was on there for one day. Were you terrified? Yes. Not to mention the directions that they had given my mom said 285 West. And we were supposed to get off at 285 East at uh, Memorial Drive to go to Avondale High School. And my mom was pissed. She was very, very upset. Me and my friend from uh, Perry, Joe Barker, he auditioned as well. But the audition was actually at Sprayberry, but our first rehearsal was at Avondale. And we drove around this round 285 like once or twice. Like Pasquale Perez? Mm-hmm. And mom was pissed. She said... And when I got there, I said something to somebody about it. I said, hey, man, um, the direction said 285. Years. I said, yeah, that's all they said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like they, they must have heard that so many times that they just finally stopped caring about yeah, they, uh, they, being, they, they feeling cared. bad. Yeah, they cared not. So. Who were the instructors at Spirit at that well, time? That was after Float left. That was the year Float left. So it was Mike Back and Randy Wickstrom. Were the Randy was the bass drum guy and the cymbal guy. And Scott Brown actually taught, but um, Mike, that was his first year. Um, he had been uh, teaching with Tom in 81. He marched, I think his last year was 79. And then he finished his degree at Moorhead State and then taught with with Matt. If I'm correct, now, I, I think this is right. But I know he taught with Float in 81, and then he became Caption Head in 82. And then, of course, Mike was just I, – I think probably Mike had – had, and I only marched the one year, but Mike had, had so much influence on me just because, for one thing, he was he is the most laid-back guy in the world. He certainly is. And he's just chill. He's chill. He, he, we were talking about it's like, man, what if you have kids? And well, I name my boy Kickback. Yeah. <laughs> But he he every he lives he lives close by and he's come to see me play with Mike Veal and just been super nice. Um, my stepson who passed away in two thousand, I actually got I, the guy Mike was just great. I I sent my, I sent Mike an email. Uh, Andrew had just left Florida State and had marched in Crown and in Carolina Crown. And I, I called Mike. I said, hey, man, would you consider just meeting with Andrew, see if there's a place for him on your staff at Walton or whatnot? Just just do that. And he did. And turned out Andrew was a real asset for him. And um, that he did that. I, I asked for a favor and he gave it to me. So I'm just, I think the world of Mike back and Andrea too. I think the world of those. Yeah. And, well, and he is just the, the reach of his influence uh, in the percussion world, well, could probably not be quantified. I mean, he is. There are so many people that he has either directly or indirectly uh, instructed and influenced. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, like, it, you know, like the Jack Bells of the world. I mean, same oh, thing. I would say him and Jack and Mark Yonchich, probably the and Ken Gallagher. Those are the those are my four that I just got so much out of. With yeah. Jack, it was just like holy moly. I remember you'd hear. You'd hear him come out and go, 
All right, okay, I, I need about I need about thirty seconds before we start. And he closed the door, and you hear him rolling that vacuum or that ro- that sweeper in his boom, 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 <laughs> in his studio. And then he'd come back up. Oh, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to begin. You know, he was very you know nonplussed, man. That's it. But he, uh, he was, yeah. And we can we can certainly we could talk we just like talk before we, about Jack Bell. We, about I mean, gosh. I, yeah. I mean. The influence on you, on me. He he taught Skyler. I mean, he 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 changed the path for Skyler as a percussionist, and just like he did for us, you know. Oh, yeah, uh, and I, I think the world of I would think the world of him too. So you know, but yeah. So I made I marched Spirit in '82, and then then we moved in the middle of my junior year. We moved to Conyers, Georgia, and that facilitated my marching. It was easier to, to go to spirit rehearsals to do that. And, uh, you know, then I marched at Heritage and Heritage had a good band program, had, had a great band program. So it was it was it was going from Perry had a good program, but it wasn't like Heritage. Heritage had a top had a top five in the state, probably in the in the country at the time. They were really they were playing level six music, which a lot not a lot of bands at that time were playing all level six music. Yeah. Oh, it was it was you know it was it you was played difficult. you playing snare on the drum line and and then doing the, snare on the drum line and then we had you know it was funny because Perry and I say this with all due respect Perry we didn't have anything we had like two or three timpani maybe and they were old and we had band room we had band in the cafeteria nobody gave Perry was the redheaded stepchild of Houston County and it's not like that anymore I went back for my fortieth reunion of all things and. They've got not one but two band rooms. They've got a band room just for the drum line. What? So, yes, they have a band room just for the drum line. They got big band room, sort of big band room for the drum line, and they've they've got it going on, man. It's beautiful over there. But you know that was the same thing for me. Uh, you know, I started at South Forsyth when it just opened as a high school because Forsyth Central had they had overgrown the the capacity of the school, so they opened up a second high school in the south part of the county. And the band program and the the budget and the instruments, it was just an afterthought. Basically, almost the entire time I was there, no no good timpani, no good mallet instruments. I mean, we were just kind of having to just kind of figure it out on whatever we had we we had we did not have a concert xylophone did not have a marimba i had never seen a marimba until i moved to heritage and they had one of those uh you know the ones the the four not the not the the, the four octave ones with the smaller bars I, it was a it was a musser um but it was a i want to say it was imperial or something but it it, it was I'd never seen that before. And what we did for for Mallet Instruments at Perry, we just took the concert. We just took the marching instruments, put them on a thing. Yeah. That's what we did for the xylophone. We had one of those, I guess, two and a half octave marching xylophones. And that's what we did. Yeah, that's no it. Chimes, no chimes, no, you know, and, and at Heritage, I think they had four or five timpani. I was like, whoa. Yeah. But, you know, but it was, it was cool, though, living in Perry. My dad, I actually got the idea, and I – my dad helped me make timpani mallets. Really? Yeah, but they, they were they were. We take a dowels and we glue the my, we would glue the ball on there, and then you take foam and and wrap it and and just foam. But then he what he would do is he would take leather golf grips. It must have I don't know what it cost leather golf grips and wrap the ends of them. I wish I still had some. I don't know what I don't know what I did with those. those that was so. I mean, probably got lost in the move and all that. Yeah. How did they, did they sound good? I, 
Nobody ever complained. I, shoot, I was 15. I got my own ballots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it beat, uh, you know, my dad, for all of his good things, he was, he could be a cheapskate, you know. I, the funniest thing that I have to share the story. The fun, so he said, I think it's time for you to get a drum set. I'm like, all right, cool. And I had the Ludwig catalog one. Mm-hmm. He said, just show me what you want. And we'll go from there. So I went to the stainless steel drum set, 12, 13, 16 stainless steel. Right. And then of course, well, I got to have Zildjian cymbals. So I put together a list and he, he took it and he gave it to a buddy of his who was a Spalding salesman. And then his buddy in turn, Ran ideal music in Atlanta. Ira, Ira, Ira called him. He said, "He said, well, Henry, I got a, I got your boy's list here. <laughs> he said, How good a boy is he?" And Dad said, "He's a pretty good kid." He said, "Is he six thousand dollars good?" And he said, "No." <laughs> Dad called me down to the pro shop. I'll never forget it because we lived really close, and I used to go down there and pick up golf balls and whole nine yards. And he said, "He said, I got your list back from a." The guy over in Atlanta, I said, yeah. He said, you know how much all that stuff costs? I said, no, sir. He said, $6,000. And me, I went, okay. He said, I'm not spending $6,000 on you, George. There's no way. (laughs) (laughs) So I got this Pearl Ruth, one of those off-brand made in Japan things. And it had a rack tom, floor tom, and a 20-inch bass drum. And it was wrapped in silver. Hence, and then that's why we called the band Silver Sky. And oh. it, matched, it matched. My dad was like, well, it's going to match the, the snare drum I already got for you, which it did. And then he had to special order a, th- a 13-inch tom for it. And then he would go to pawn shops and pick out cymbals. I had a crut, you know, I had a crut cymbal. <laughs> and I had something else. And, but it was, you know, it, it was, it was, uh, it was, that was what I had. But yeah, I tried to, I wanted a, a stainless steel big beat. Out of the $6,000. $6,000. How much those drums weighed? Oh, we had some, we got some stainless steel marching drums, some of the snares. And that was when you had a sling. And I just remember those things being heavy. Oh, yeah. I imagine imagine a bass drum was just. I can't even imagine. uh -uh. And again, we had bass drums that matched and those those guys wore straps. And uh, I just, those guys wore straps and I can't imagine what they weighed. I just can't. Probably still, yeah, people experiencing permanent back issues from years, the, the years in high school carrying those drums around. <laughs> you know, Scott Brown played, the, um, we talk about Scott, he marched in spirit when they had the seven triples and then the four. And he said his back still bothers. Oh, man. You know, so yeah. I just, <laughs> golly, the things you do for love. That's exactly right. I remember Scott Brown, uh, when I, knew him was when he had great southern percussion yep yep him and yeah. leon burdett that's right him and leon burdett and kim lloyd yeah that's all, right all three gentlemen and scholars i love those guys very much I absolutely talk every so often he's funny and leon is a pastor in in a church in alabama really yeah and kim Kim is a, we're both, Kim and I are both fellow Bama fans. And so we've commiserated the other day about the loss of our coach. Oh, yes. Uh, so, but, you know, yeah, those guys are, those guys that great Southern percussion and they had great Northern percussion, if I'm right. Didn't they? Oh, I don't remember that. I know they had great Southern. Maybe they did away with great Northern. I don't remember, but great when percussion. I, when I was in eighth grade, I started taking private lessons with Tim Howard. Oh, yeah. Um, and Tim was close with those guys, and 
that's how I met them. And then they used to have they used to have the great Southern Day of Percussion, which is kind of like a pa- like a PAS event, and awesome. we would always go and take a percussion ensemble and and play for those things. Oh man, we had that that indoor. Yeah, I, I took Heritage uh, a couple of years. So yeah, to the, that was the drum line that. I ended up war- so I ended up we're fast forwarding, but I ended up being the percussion instructor at Heritage for about ten years, and I took those guys to the indoor thing, and that was when you know drumline like Villa Rica and stuff they were really into the indoor, and and it's a, now it's a whole different thing, but you really had to think. I mean, it was a different thing. You had to drill in the whole nine yards. Yeah, I remember the Cleveland High School in Cleveland, Tennessee. They were they were at that time that was the best. High school indoor line, I think I had seen. They were unbelievable. Yeah, they just they have. I don't know what the, what their program is like now, but they were the only, as far as when I was a senior in high school, we beat them band wise, but they spanked our butt drum wise. Yeah, and that's you know. So. so I have to ask this question as we're talking about DCI and indoor drum line, and um, this is when this is when you and I are allowed to get on our soapbox of about a few things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts about the state of drumline and rudimental percussion and all of that? How what are, how are you feeling about all that these days? I got to tell you, there, I'm, I'm it's a paradox for me because there's this guy who I follow on uh, on either Instagram or whatever. And he always has these hybrid rudiments, you know, and I'm always like, okay, I want I want to learn that. Now I don't know how that that's not going to come into play much when you do this. But like the, you know, I like that. On the other hand, you know, I'd really like to see less props. Mm-hmm. The props thing has gotten out of hand here. And, um, you know, the last show, I think Phantom did a show last year and I really liked it and it had minimal props. And I know that it's become more like B- Bands of America and all that stuff. And the activity is going to change. The problem that they're having right now is because I'm, I'm a spirit alumni and I donate money every month. To spirit, it comes. I don't even see it; it just goes. And um, the problem now is, it takes so much money to compete, and it's not just even. Um, I mean, props cost money. You can recycle that stuff, but fuel costs and transportation costs and food costs. You know, you've been to the grocery store lately. That's a lot of fun. It's a lot of yeah. fun to get eight dollar eggs. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you can't. You can't go. It's impossible, I think, to go to the grocery store and not spend a hundred bucks anymore. It, it's impossible unless you get one thing, and even that one thing, it depends on what it is. So, as far as that goes, they've got. I mean, I, I see this stuff on a daily basis. People talking about how how are we going to be able to cut costs? And you know, last year uh, Santa Clara was inactive because yeah. they, you know. Spirit was inactive two years before because they. It was just there was some things. It's it costs a lot of money, especially if you're on the West coast and the championships are in Indianapolis, you got to get there. Yeah. Blue devils don't really have blue devils are the exception. I'm sure it still costs them money, but blue devils are the exception. And I hope that SCV comes back like, like they have. I just think that at some point I love the state of rudimental drumming. I mean, those kids play stuff that I just, I never even thought about these what was I was looking at a thing yesterday. It's a it's a five. It's oh, it's a hybrid rudiment. It's like a and they call you know they have the names from Chutcher Cheese, Chut, 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 you know. And it's a it's a five with a with a flam with a with it's it's like a Swiss triplet on the first two on first three things. Chut, but there's a it's a one hand so Chut, and then it's a cheese followed by a tap, and then you alternate. Chut, 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 and you know, 
I, there's this other thing that I've been working on. It's one, it's a Swiss triplet followed by a flam accent. Then you swap it. And then you put a, if you can, you put a diddle on the second partial of each triplet. So it becomes this. Like a, like a flam drag kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Flam drag, but it's a, 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 a right-handed flam. It, it, I don't know. I love that stuff. If nothing else, I like it because I can't play it and it's fun to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just wonder, I, I just wonder where the, I, I'm curious as to see where the activity goes. I love drum core and I like, I like shows that I can recognize the music. Uh, Blue Coats did a great Beatles show. It was fantastic. Yeah. And Blue Devils last year, they did a, a Both Sides Now, the Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now in their show. And I'm like, you had me at Both Sides Now. Yes. That's beautiful. And when you do stuff that folks recognize, for at least for me, I, you know, I love esoteric stuff. I do. But, you know, if you if all your stuff goes, man, I don't recognize one bit of P. It's all original music. And you go, hmm, I can't remember a melody. And, yeah. But, but you know, it, they're gonna have. They've got some challenges ahead of them. Now they're doing a, a DCI all ages. Really? Yeah. So they're not the senior cores are now going to be part of DCI. It'll all, all be the same thing. This is the first year they're doing that. Wow. Well, we, I'll be interested to see how that all goes. I would like to see how that works out. You know, every year I think oh, I'm going to go march Corvettes, and I'm like, no. no, no, no. All it takes is stepping outside in the middle of summer, and you're like, no, I'm good. I don't know, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, I thought about, I, I wanted to do the alumni, spirit alumni thing, and I still could. They're going to march, I think they're going to march in finals. They're going to perform at finals, not this year, but 2025, I think. That's their goal. And it's it's been, they did pretty well at the, the local Atlanta show. They, they sounded good. And I just, you know, I don't want to, I, I really don't want to play. I, I could play bass drum because I love playing bass drum. I don't know that I could carry tenors. I could play the snare stuff, but my traditional grip is not where it needs to be, and there's still there's still chugga chugga chugga. So, and, but Mike backs involved in it, and so that's one of the reasons why I do it. So he said, "Man, you ought to come out. You ought to come out. You ought to come." Well, out. you should consider doing it. That's awesome. I've got their street beat, and I've I play through it on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, it's, it's play it's playable, and I'm like, okay, but I just need to work. He's we, I asked him, I said, could I, could I pay you to help me work on my traditional grip? He said, I bet it's not as bad as you think. I'm like, oh, it is. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know, man. There's also a time thing. And, and you know how I am about stuff. I want to be able to do stuff at a high level. And I think that, you know, I don't know. I just have to make sure that I have time to hone that and do it right and still make a living, you know, playing drums. That's it. No, that's, that's it. Do you, do you get to, uh, do you practice much? Mm-hmm. Are you, is it, is it mostly hand stuff or do you practice drum set stuff work? Do you work on things you're interested in? Um, a lot of what I do is hand stuff. If nothing else, just maintenance. I have practice pads all over the house, uh, much to everybody's chagrin. You know, I have a practice pad in the living room so that, you know, and it, you know, it sits there and I've got one down here in the basement. I've got, I've got, then I've got two in my little other side of the studio over there. I always travel with one. And so I'm all, I'm, I try to do at least 30 minutes a day hand stuff. You know, um, I will, I do come down and do drum set stuff. If there, if, like, if I feel like there's something weak or whatever, the, the challenge I have these days is that my right knee is just bad. It's just oldness, you know. Uh, as Dr. Albert says, I have worn out my bearing. So I try to, I, I will do some work with my foot 
with my feet and do some practicing stuff and try to learn, try to learn some new stuff and really try to do that. But I will tell you that if I'm not playing and I have a long week ahead, I will take that time to rest. Sure. And just do right and just do hand stuff. I'll always do hand stuff, you know, because that just to me is I can I can always do that anywhere. Yeah. Well, and it's it's fun. I heard a story years ago about Vinny Coliuta like checking into a hotel and like playing on the the counter at the hotel. That like he carries a pair of drumsticks with him ah! everywhere he goes. Yeah. You know? I've got a, yeah. I mean, I th- I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a. I keep a pair in, in the bag that I travel with. I, I know I have I have a pair of uh, marching sticks in my backpack along with a spare pair of drum set sticks and then a temp, set of timpani mallets and a set of brushes. It's ridiculous kind of, but I do have those in my backpack along with my laptop and my iPads, my in-ears and stuff. So, yes, I, the, the short answer is yes, I still try to practice. Mostly it's hand it's hand stuff uh but i do i mean having this down here and being able to come down here and play anytime well i can't play anytime but be able to do that is a real luxury and i mean i bought one of those uh drumeo foot pad things oh really i bought one of those little it's it comes with a beater and it, it sits it looks like a little trigger and I, I have I have not set it up in the living room because I have a feeling Shella would kill me. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I do, have, you know, and and there's grandchildren and they're just, you know, into everything. So yeah, they that would that would just be a, an immediate thing for them to be like, oh, I'm going to play with this. They all play, they all play with poppy sticks, and they, you know, I've got a little set of those mini LP bongos, and they like to play with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, man. But, uh, yeah, so I do practice. I still practice a lot. That's I, I fantastic. Say, uh, nothing else for just to keep the rust from collecting. That that's all. Well, that's it. That, that and it's as someone who doesn't play as much anymore. It's amazing how quickly you lose it and how long it takes to get it back. Uh, and, I, yeah. If I go, you know, if I if, if I go on vacation or something, I will take a practice pad and I try to get on it at least once or twice. But yeah, you, you, you I kind of feel oogie. Yeah, <laughs> I play a couple, you know, play a little bit every day. Yeah, absolutely, so. absolutely. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I do not. I will admit that I do not practice anywhere near as much as I would like to, and as much as I should. And I should do it just as a really as just a way to kind of is some therapy, you know, to just kind of just free my brain of maybe the stuff that's stressing me out. I I don't disagree with that. And it's good therapy for me. And like I said, I, I do these hybrid things and I'm just amazed that these kids play, you know, it's, it's, and, and again, you know, stuff like I had breakfast with Scott meter the other day and I was showing him this thing with the Swiss triplets. And he was like, he was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, Man, you know, you should come over and play. And and I will tell you this, Brad, and this is the God's honest truth. The, the book, the books that I have over there in my practice room, I have the 150 and I have um, that rudimental swing book that he wrote. That mm-hmm. wrote. But then my kids got me the NARD solos, except for Cody took the A and covered it up with an E. So it's the nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I still have, I use that. And then I bought this French rudimental book the other day, not too long ago. And man, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. Is it like, it's not like the De La Cluz books though, is it? Is, do you remember kind which of, one? In the- uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, it's hard, man. It's just like, dude, there are lots of wow. fives and breaking up fives and sevens and, you know, just stuff. Just, 
just hard stuff. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, I'm like, well, okay. Book, exercise one. <laughs> I, you look, I, I like, I'm still a fan of the, the stick control, the George Stone stick yep. control book. And I think there's so much value in just using that basic concept of hand to hand exercise. And then you can work on musical ideas. You can, you can isolate one thing you're trying to fix or trying to improve on. Yeah. It's uh, it's a, it's like an endless world out there of resources of things that you can practice. Especially now, man, because you know, there's when we were growing up, we didn't have YouTube and have videos, and mm-hmm. now it's just these guys that are these kids that are coming up, they can they do this stuff and oh, learn it on YouTube. It's like, God, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And now I'm gonna, in fact, I'm gonna do it today. They have a version of stick control that's bound, and so it's 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 bound. Really? Yeah, and it's like well, I want that because you know, open it up, and then you got to, and you know, that's I want to get that. The other thing I do is, is and I don't know if, if you you know Tommy Igo, um, mm-hmm. this thing called uh, Great Hands for a Lifetime, and he's got this lifetime warm up that he and his father came up with, and that thing is awesome, and you can do that. I really, if I do that, I'll try to do that once a day. Not worried about the tempo, just going through it. It'll 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 put some hair on your chest because really, if you really do it the way he does it, it's it's it can be tough. I mean, especially you know, uh, it's really good. And he's he's uh, I do that. Try to like especially for sessions. I'll go through that. There's a, a certain thing that I will do that I do to warm if I have to warm up quickly and just play. There's a thing that I do that I got from him. Um, uh, but uh, that lifetime warm up is great. It's got a Beginner and intermediate and advanced, and the advanced one is is, is hard. He is quite a player and, and, and quite an educator, right? Just yet developing all these exercises to for players is crazy. He's a, he's a great teacher, and it's one of the reasons why I have I've been asked to teach lately. And I just I think that you really have to be dedicated to it. I really think you have to have a curriculum and. You know, I would still gravitate like for basic drum set. I would still probably go to the realistic rock book. That I was going to ask you about any methods that you played from as a drum set player. To me, that's the one I would always go to. That and maybe the Chapin book. The Chapin book. Yeah, that's the realistic rock. To me, is still can it can get you on the path you need to be on. Yep, and, and if you and the important thing about that that book for me is. There's not, it's not, it's not hard, but there's a, it, that's where you develop your feel. That's right. That's where you develop your feel. And, you know, um, I went through that book. I went through, um, I went through Realistic Rock. I went through the, uh, the Chapin book. Um, I went through Stick Control and then we did the Fatback stuff, mm-hmm. Chafee stuff and doing, doing that sort of thing. The Fatback stuff is that, that's, that's, uh, invaluable, you know, where you're doing, you switch your hi hat thing, and you you add you play your different bass drum stuff that goes along with it. That's where you know that that changed me a little bit. That changed me a lot. So, and then I I have um uh, I have one of the Garibaldi books. I think I was just like okay, yeah, you know, and uh, but then I have this uh, Clayton Cameron brush book because I got a brush pad. There's so many. What kills me is there's so many things that I want to practice, you know, and I will try to do that, and I want to be better at, but. I also like watching The Sopranos on HBO. You know, I I I, well, I understand one hundred percent what you're talking about. Yeah, and that family time together, you know, or just just a, some t- some time away from it 
yeah, to, to refill the tank is is sometimes maybe more invaluable than spending another thirty minutes uh, on the instrument. I, I agree, and um, you know, it's it's um, you went to that Peter Erskine clinic, didn't you? No, I wasn't able to go. Well, it was so funny to me because he was, he's so soft-spoken because he's got tinnitus for one or tinnitus or whatever you want to call it, but he's so soft-spoken and he was talking about this session he did for Seth McFarlane and he said, it's a big band thing and at first he was just reading through the stuff and he played just quarter notes and then he went back and they cut one and he started doing the ding, ching, ding, ching, ding. But he said, I, I don't, I don't think, I, I think I need to go back to what I was doing. And Seth said, sure, man. And so he went and play, he played quarter notes on the ding, ching, ching. And that struck me because one of the things he said was, had I not taken a second just to get away from the, I wouldn't, I would have tried to play spang, spang, lang, you know. Uh, he gave me a sticks, by the way. I still have a pair, have a pair. Really? Oh yeah, it was awesome. Oh, awesome. that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and look, I, I think the, and as true as it may be, the term playing to the song is very overused. I get it. But it is amazing how we tend to get in our own way about some of those things. And maybe even at that moment, he might have been feeling the, well, I'm playing a swing thing. So apparently the the expectation is that I play the standard yep. ride cymbal pattern that <laughs> everyone feels that I'm supposed to play. And no... That's may that's probably not what it needed, and he had to get out of his own way. You know, I did a session the other day. We were doing this slow country thing, and it was you know, but that just felt like it felt too busy. So I went to, and it was really slow. So I'm playing to a click, and I'm now I got to concentrate. This mm-hmm. you're filling in the holes, but now you got but but in in the truth, this as simple as it was. Playing side stick and then playing in the courses was what the song needed. And I yeah. went back and said, I need to do this again and just just let me just have it again. And I just you have to let you have to get out of your own way. That's really it. You know? it and it's, you know, musicians tend to overthink, get in their head. And I would even say there are a lot of times where I play defensively instead of just relaxing and doing what I need to do. Well, I'm going to tell you, you I don't know of a time that you've ever not played what's right. Oh, gosh. I mean, seriously, as long as we've been together, you know, in the couple of sessions that we've done, we, you know, I remember what what's his name? Eric was like, man, you guys don't need two or three takes. I'm like, yeah, I know, because Brad is awesome. And, and we just lock in. And you take away, you know, if you take a – this is a weird analogy, but if you take a piece of meat, right, a, a nice steak, and you keep just enough fat on it for flavor. Cut all the rest of that fat away. You're going to have a great piece of meat. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you take a big slab of beef and it's got all the fat hanging out off of it, it's going to be it's going to be heavy and it's not going to taste as good. So, and I I look at like playing that way. It's like okay, what's the what's the shortest distance? between making this thing groove what do i what's the what's the best thing i can do to make this thing groove and a lot of times it's just take away all the extras that's exactly right it's it's knowing when to use the pencil and when to use the eraser absolutely absolutely we we did a play with a guy named george hughley uh for thursday night at blind willies he's 80 years old man he's he's dancing and he's it's incredible to me and we did a um, lying to the races 
I'll tell you, and I played side stick the entire time, only because it seemed to work. And he never asked me to pick it up or whatever, and the other guys playing seemed to like it, and it just seemed to seemed to work. And there's, I just think that eventually you have to get down to, yes, there are times when you blow, and there are times when you, can you give me more and all that. But I tell you, the thing for me is, has been most of the time, nobody wants to really hear that from, from me. They want to hear, they, they want groove. And I'm okay with that. That's fine for me. Uh, well, you know, you groove as well as anyone, anyone. Yeah. And then in, when it's necessary to blow, you can, you can do it again as well as anyone, George. It's just, wow. it's I, unbelievable. I, it really I, is. I, I think that the one thing that I like to try to do, this is one I, I was thinking about the other day. The one thing I like to try to do is uh, instead of playing these big fast fills, I will try to go like a uh, play a, a three against two or something like that. I do that a lot, and I don't know whether what that is, you know, playing long and then do like a, you know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know why. I, I don't, it's, 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 well, it's, it's rhythmically interesting, and it, it does change up. For just a moment, it just kind of changes the feel of everything. Just a little bit, and yeah, that's and, awesome. And you get it, you do it, you, you get it out of the way, and then you go back to to grooving. Yeah, but yeah, but that's you're very sweet to say that. I, look, I am a byproduct of who I play with, and I've played with some great guys. But as I've told you, playing with you when we played that first gig, it was just it was like, and I always say this: it's like slipping on a pair of of blue jeans that you've worn for a while. That aren't worn out, but they just fit your body, and it's boom, and you're good. That's exactly that's exactly it. That's exactly the way it is. Um, and and I, you know, I've said this to you a hundred times, but I, I'm going to say it on here so it's wow. it's recorded okay. for the record awesome. that <laughs> that you manage to play every song with the right feel and tempo for me as a singer. It every we play a song one time and we we figure out where that tempo and feel needs to be. It is going to be that way every time from then on. And it is so easy to be a bass player and a singer when you're the when you're playing drums, man. It is just it is a complete pleasure. Well, you you're a sweetheart, and I'm, I'm a, I will tell you where I started, where I got that from, and I'll tell you where I got that from. And this is I read an article. With about Greg Bissonette. Greg was talking and he was at some tribute thing and it was him and Steve Gadd and so forth and else. And, St- and Greg was all worried about backstage and blah, blah, blah. And he went over to Steve and Steve was sitting there just kind of looking up at looking up at the ceiling and singing something and clicking the sticks. And Steve went, Greg, how you doing? You all right? He said, yeah, I'm a little nervous. And, and Steve Gadd said, yeah, I'm just wanting to, I'm singing the song so I can fall right, so I can get the right tempo of it. And so now, whenever I'm playing a song, I, I don't I don't know if you notice this or not, but I will sing part of it. If nothing, I'll just like you know, just try to sing a a, a a line or something. And then if that thing feels right, because to me, if you're playing in a vocal group, if you're playing where vocals are there, that's I don't care what you can have your ego about it, whatever. Vocals are the main. That's what people listen to. That's what people gravitate towards. And if you if you are singing, if it's too fast and you can't get the words out, then then you you failed. If it's too slow and it sounds like a funeral dirge, 
you failed. But if you've got it to where the vocals sit right where they're supposed to sit, then you've succeeded. And that's the only way I do. I, I literally will, you know, sing something, sing a phrase of the song before I count it off. If, it, if I don't do it, it's just in my head. Well, and we talk about playing to the song and that conversation typically is about playing fills or playing groove, but not enough attention is given to the tempo element of playing to the song. Right. And thankfully for all of us singers out there, you have a great understanding of that and know what is required in order to really make this, to give the song its justice. Well, you're, you're a sweetheart. And, you know, I, maybe the other thing that helps is that I do sing a little bit. I mean, I, I certainly don't fancy myself a I'm a drummer who happens to possibly sing a little bit. I mean, you're you're a fantastic singer. I love your voice. You could sing the phone book and people would be enthralled with it. And and don't even sell yourself short that way because they because they love your voice. I've always loved your voice. But if nothing else, I can apply that. You know, I've got to sing, you know, Johnny come, you know, Johnny come lately. I've got to sing that phrase. And it's got to be in time. If it's too fast, then new kid in town sounds like we're off to the races. And that's not what it's supposed to be. Yeah. No, that's it. That, that's it. And, uh, well, on behalf of all of us singers out there, thank you, George Sandler. Oh, you're, you're a, you're, you're a you're fine, a, fine gentleman. You're, <laughs> you're, you're a great guy. And, you know, like I said, the one, th- the, one of the other things that, that I, I love about your playing and your vocals, but there's, there's a lyrical playing to your bass playing. There's, is a, roundness to the tone and you know it's just again it's just this groove thing i know that this i hope that whoever hears this doesn't think that i mean if you think that we're this is a mutual admiration society well it is because i adore brad i adore his playing and you know i hate that he's in st louis (laughs) (laughs) i know man that's right exactly (laughs) so (laughs) So I'm trying to think of how to set this story up. So in the early 2000s, I was playing, and I think you probably were too. We were orbiting in different universes, but we were both playing a lot of those radio promotions for the country stations in Atlanta. That was a big thing at that time. It was a big old, it was a huge thing. And, and, And kudos to, what was it, Kicks and Eagle? Yeah, kicks and eagle, especially race week. Yeah, at the, at, they kept all. I mean, they we they had radio remotes almost every night. Every yeah. Night. So I was playing in a band with Tommy Dodd and uh, some other fantastic guys. Yeah, Mike uh, Mike Johnson. Yeah, um, and you were playing with Tempercell and the Mustangs. Yep. And Mike was not available to do a gig at one point, and Toby Ruckert subbed for Mike. So that's how I got to know Toby. Yeah. Just a fantastic guy. Oh, what a great guy. And so you guys had some gigs coming up, and it was for race week. Right. There were two. It was two back-to-back gigs and down in, like, Stockbridge. No, this was in Jonesboro. We Jonesboro, have- you're right. You're right, George. A terrible Boulevard. Jones- that's ex- that's oh, it. Moly. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Does, so they called and asked if I could sub for you guys, sub for your bass player. And um, I think the first one was at like at a Kroger or something. It was the Kroger. It was it was outdoors. Yes. And it was it was in the evening, I believe. And Kyle Petty came mm-hmm. and people were standing around the damn block holding doors and tires and everything else for him. to. I mean, there was a guy standing there with a hood. And a yes. door, 
And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And they were all getting his signature on them. Yeah. And, and they were giving away race tickets, yeah. which was just so that, yeah. So the, the second gig was at another it was store. At a Eckerd's, it was at an Eckerd drug company. That's right. Yep. Yes. And they were giving away, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, I know exactly. where. <laughs> They're giving away race tickets. And I guess this woman thought that she could sweeten the deal to maybe get race tickets. And, um, Oh my God. So we had finished. All right. So we had finished. Remember? Yes. We finished. And they had this big wheel. I don't know if it was Cadillac or it wasn't rhubarb, but it was one of the radio personalities out there. And they'd spun We you spin the wheel and you get tickets. We had finished. We were almost packed up. This is how I remember. Maybe you do this beat up. Cream-colored, rust-covered Folare. (laughs) And it's creaking, and it backfires. Pow! And they park. And these three people get out. God love them, man. I mean, holy moly. And one of them's carrying something. Got her her arms cold up. Y'all still giving away tickets? (laughs) And it was like, no, ma'am, we're done. And Toby... Toby, I don't know what made Toby go do this, but Toby said, she's carrying something. I'm going to go check it out. I'm like, okay. And he went, whoa, it's a goat. It's a baby goat. This woman brought a baby goat oh. to this event to try. To, I don't know if she was going to try to bribe them. Uh, it was trade it in for a, some tickets, but she brought a baby goat. She brought a baby goat. And she said, she said, well, I brought my goat. I named it Jimmy. After Jimmy Johnson. I named it Jimmy. He's our favorite driver. And he had been there. If I'm right, he had been there and he had already gone. That was when he was on the the Bush circuit. He was driving the little, the, the Excedrin car, something like that, if I remember. Because I got two little cars that I gave to my boys. And I wish I had them now because they were autographed by him. They probably, you know, whatever. But he had left. She said, is Jimmy still here? <laughs> I was like, no, he's gone, man. Well, I brought him a goat. Oh, well. I just would love to have heard the conversation that led up to that. Them thinking that was the best idea of the day. We can't leave the baby goat alone. We need to bring it with. <laughs> he ain't going to make it by himself. But you know, we, we probably we could parlay this into some tickets. <laughs> exactly right. Needless to say, they did not get tickets for their effort. And, and it was, God love them, but they were three of the most unusually unusual looking that lady came up in her like moo. she was not even wearing she was wearing her house coat mm-hmm. and i was like mm. yeah two dudes that got out with i was just like mm-hmm. yeah so 20 plus years later we are still talking about that uh, about the day that we got to uh that was the second it was the second day we knew each other yeah. and we got to experience this gal uh bringing a goat to a radio promotion it was crazy baby goat man and what was what part was fun about Toby went up to her and touched him went whoa like his hand like he burned his hands whoa, whoa. <laughs> like wow you know I mean he literally pulled his hands back like he had burnt them it was, yes oh it was hilarious it was I, hilarious you know we've had we've had so many fun fun time on stage we had um when we we used to do these things at good old days every Sunday we did that for a while yeah. And out on the patio, if it wasn't out on the patio, if it was raining, we did it inside. And we had such a good time with it. Now, this one wasn't one 
this was with Kenny. Kenny played on this one, the one mm-hmm. where we did the. We had we would just do all kinds of things, and we were doing a Hungry Heart Springsteen, and we just kept playing the four the, the chord changes over and over again, and we um we started singing different Bruce Springsteen songs, and you know I think I sang uh, your hometown. And, and, and then some, and then Brad, Brad went. You better watch out. You better not. And we, the three of us, just lost it. We never stopped playing, but we were laughing so hard that we could barely play. And we, that was the funniest thing I think that has ever happened to me on stage. Besides that, that was I don't know what where you pulled out Santa Claus is coming to town, but. You know, and the and the people around us, they weren't laughing as hard as we were, and we no. don't care because it just it's like here we are in the middle of July or August or whatever it was, hot out outside, and Brad goes, "You better watch out!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was hilarious. That was that was great. So that was I. That is probably the funniest the funniest moment I've ever experienced on stage. It was so because it was just so silly. Uh, it was so much fun. Uh, you know, the other memory I have is from that patio was when that woman kept coming up requesting songs. Yep, and she got to be she got she got to be a pain in the butt, and but we didn't have to say anything because mm-hmm. nobody in the audience did. Someone took care of it for us. Um, the, yeah, she just kept wasn't tipping. And it was like every song that we played for her, she then came up and asked for another one. And it was one after another, one after another. And finally, someone in the back of the patio, and it was packed. There were so many people there. Benevolent soul. Someone screams out, you're not that hot. (laughs) Sit down, lady. You're not that hot. And and, and everybody, everybody, including us, went, ooh. And and she left. She left. She made her exit, which was... I don't know who that was, but if you if you are the person who did that and you hear this message, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for saving the day. It was oh, no so way. funny. And then you know we had we played we played a bunch of church gigs together. Um, we played at First Baptist Alpharetta. Uh, the two things uh, we shall remain nameless. We had a guy who was serving as the interim worship leader, and every and and it was it was just nuts, man. We we would do a traditional service and um, a modern service. And the traditional service, I would play percussion. We would have a percussion set up, set up, and we'd go through that thing. And then we'd go and do the strike all that and do the modern worship or whatever. And this guy, we would we would do these rehearsals, and it was it was it was better than even money where he would be on stage in the middle of it and not do what we rehearsed. And we'd all be sitting there going, "What is he doing? What is he doing?" And so one Sunday we decided, uh uh-uh, uh, we're going to stick to the chart. We're going to play this thing, and if it goes off the rails, it goes off the rails. And he, I, it was this, uh, oh, it was that Israel Houghton tune, um, and he wanted to do six bridges, and it's like, what? When five bridges just won't do. <laughs> when, when four bridges just won't do. <laughs> and it was like, uh, okay, and then we we so okay, we'll do sure thing. And I remember he did four or five and went into the chorus and was like, nope, we are staying right here. We are in bridge six, bruh. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then Kobe, uh, Kobe, he was standing next to Brad. I sent Brad this picture. I still have it. Kobe's sitting there and he draws. Kobe is Kobe Ross was a great uh, acoustic guitar player, just a great guy. He's drawing something on his sheet music. And he snaps a picture of it. And he sends it to all of us, and it's this—it's this 
figure of this horse with the cr- eyes crossed and a guy with a with a bat <laughs> beating a dead horse, and that all just got us. And we were we were laughing. And they were they welcome to First Baptist Church of Alpharetta, and we're sitting there and we're laughing. I mean, we we've all got our heads down like this because he he sent it to all of us. It was that was hilarious. The other thing that happened. Do you remember the time? We were playing. They had had a concert, and they had taken down the partition, the booth, if you will, for the drums. And it was all wobbly. I said, "Man, this thing's not going to hold." Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm like, I'm telling you, it's not going to hold. But okay, it's fine. And in the middle of the last song, the sides collapsed, and this thing fell. The roof fell on me, and I just ducked, and it flipped. <laughs> and we never stopped playing. But I was like, I "Told you guys, this thing is this is not going to hold." I had not. I, I'd forgotten about that. Uh, yeah, I, and the band played on, you know, the, the Titanic is singing, sinking, but the band played on. Brad's got his head down like this because <laughs> he's laughing and I'm, I'm like, oh my God, that was, that was, that was priceless. We, we could have been, uh, we could have been a viral sensation on YouTube. Oh man. Someone had captured where, that yeah, moment. Where was the, where was the capturing? I mean, that guy who got hit by the cross that fell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, yeah, man. We've had a lot of good times playing together. Um, Brad shared a recording. Now, where did we? Where was that? That was it. So that was at Terra Humata. Um, we didn't yeah. think anything. Everything sounded. I was amazed at how good everything sounded. So I just would bring a little Zoom recorder, and I would. I don't know if you remember, but above the bar there was a little bit of there was a ledge. Mm-hmm. And I would at the beginning of the night, I would just turn on the Zoom recorder and sit the sit it up there. Wow! And it would just pick up everything in the room. That that is to me that's a testament to that that piece of gear. And also, I, I will say this: a testament to the three of us, you, Brooks, and myself, that we just balanced each other. We just yeah, it was a balance there. You couldn't have mixed that. That's like straight to two track. That's it. There was no mixing to it at all. It was just, it picked up everything around it. And uh, yeah, just pick, picked up the, the way we were mixing ourselves at the at that moment in a loud, very full bar. In a, in a loud, very full bar with people, you know, talking because you can, you can hear the people in the background talking. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, so we started, you and I, I don't even remember how it all started. Um, I guess we had done some trio things. We, You and I have been very lucky to have a trio and work with a very great variety of keyboard players from the late Gene Le, Gino LeSage, yep. who just was amazing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Kenny Head, of course. Right. Um, and then we played at Terra Humata, and I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Dave Schliesman played with us a few yep. times. I remember Dave, and then Nate, Nate Fink played with us once. Nate Fink played with us. Yep. And then um, Brooke Smith, who um, I met playing in uh, Living Large with, yep. and then you played with. I'll, I remember the first time you met Brooks was you were subbing on a Living Large gig. Yep. And I remember we were doing sound check, and you and I were started playing a song and Brooks looked over at me and he was like, Oh, well I can tell you guys have never played with each other before. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny, man. Brooks is, Brooks is such, um, I mean, he's got perfect pitch and Mm -hmm. and that alone, 
but he, he's such a um, such a great musician. I mean, he's, he played with a band called The Grapes in Atlanta, and he's been with uh, he's got a, a thing called the Yeti Trio, and they play stuff way out there stuff, just out, yeah. out out there stuff. But he he just the three of us, and again, this is not belittling any of the other keyboard players we play with. Certainly, we had great times with Kenny and you know and other guys, but the three of us sang well together and played well together, and we enjoyed the same music and it was just it was just again another instance of having a, a nice broken in pair of jeans and just putting it on it just felt right from the start that's exactly it and we we were lucky to be in that venue playing because they kind of let us just do our thing and we it we had a lot of friends that would come a lot of musicians would show up yep. and we just kind of did whatever we wanted to do Yep. Um, it, whether, whether we thought it was a good idea or not, we would try just about anything. I'll never forget. Let's be in like, Hey, let's do band on the run this weekend when yeah. we play, or let's do, uh, let's do turn it on again by Genesis this weekend. And we just would show up and, or we'd be in the middle of a song and you would have an idea to, Hey, let's go into this song right in the middle of this one, or I'm going to sing this one right in the middle of this. And it just worked. It, it did, and it's one of those. You know, I don't want. I don't want to. You know, but I, I, it, it is one of those things that it, it's just symbiotic from the start, and and that doesn't happen all the time. You play with great musicians, and and it works. But when you play with when you have that relationship and that and that thing that just locks from the from the very get go. I mean, gosh, we did that wedding up in a up on that hilltop for the Stinson. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, we went on tour. We loaded my van full of gear because we had to have everything. Had to go. Was that in North Carolina? Where was in that? North Carolina. And, and, and we had to come, it was in part of North Carolina. We came back through um, South Carolina. We stopped at that um, Fuddruckers on the way back. That's right. You know? So uh, it's, it's, um, it was a lot of fun. We were on tour. It, it's one of those bands where, well, a couple of things for me. Number one is that we could go and you can go and play for the musicians in the world mm-hmm. and play some stuff that maybe people aren't used to hearing. Or we could go play a wedding and play all the standard fare that people wanted to hear. Right. Uh, the other thing about it for me is that at the end of my life, when I think about my musical journey from a 30,000 foot view. Right. That's going to be one of those things that stands out to me is my experience getting to play with you guys because it 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 truly is one of the highlights of my life getting to play music. Me too. I, I, I can I everything else I shouldn't say has paled in comparison, but in a way it has. You know, I, I've played again. I've played with a lot of great great players, but there was something about that that was really special. And you know, it was it was just a lot of fun. It was it was just great and man you know i think that i again you know things being what they were i, I hope we're gonna I'm, I'm i really want to try to play some this summer with it and, and see if you can i know that you gotta you got your thing and you in st louis but we'll figure something out oh absolutely and and we're not we're not far away we can do it and and i'm i'm banking on the fact that we're going to we're gonna put the uh put the old band back together the old band back place, and um because it it was just too special not to um, revisit it, and if anything, just for ourselves to just have some fun because it was so much fun. It, it, I, I can't imagine anybody having more fun than we did. I, I just mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just you know I 
I just can't imagine anybody having more fun than we did because we we laughed. We were always laughing. We were it was glad that we were glad to see each other. The band sounded good, and it was just it was effortless. And that's yeah. what, you know if 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 anybody's listening to this and you want to play in a band when you know it's right is when it's effortless. When you don't have to put. I mean, you have to think, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. When when it's just you just play, and and that's when it's right. That's it. That's exactly it. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, it's great. So I know you've done a, a ton of sessions over the years, and I'm just curious about you playing drums in a recording studio versus playing at a live uh, in a live situation. Do you adjust your approach differently for those two things, or where? What is the overlap between the two, and what are the differences between the two? Well, okay. So it's funny you should ask. I try to look at a session and try to play it as I would live because it's going to have energy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But I will, I, I will even edit my, my playing even more in the studio a lot of times. But um, I think I really try to, I, I really try to capture, try to capture what I would do live in a studio. I don't want it to be that different. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does. Absolutely. I, I think that, that, for something to sound fresh, it should not sound robotic. And if I have one complaint about any some of the Steely Dan stuff that I've heard over the years, it sounds robotic. Some of the stuff sounds robotic, you know. Yeah. But like you listen to uh, Doctor Wu with with Picaro and Jeff just played. You he know what played. I mean? Played. Yeah. And, and so that's what I try to do in the studio. If it's something, and and I will try to. Um, I always try to get my stuff within a take or two so that it's fresh. I know that you hear stories about, you know, take after take after take after take. And I just think that that just squeezes the ever loving life out of. Yeah. You know, I think, yes, the studio is that place for trying to get everything right and perfection. But I also think there's got to there's still got to be a feel to it. There's still got to it's still got to be that it's still you're still making music. You're not you're not doing a math equation. You're still making music. And so the only difference I would say maybe is, and I haven't even done this lately. It used to be I had a separate set of symbols for live and a separate set of symbols for studio. But I think pretty much I use the same sort of thing. You know, I use a pretty much use a 22-inch ride, maybe a 23, one of those sweet rides, uh, 15-inch hi-hats these days. I use those live and in the studio. And I will swap them out. The crashes are bigger. Um, you know, with the I, I try to just try to approach it to make it as fresh sounding as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah. I don't know that I adjust anything. I might, um, I even use, I mean, I use the same sticks, you know, there are some, there are some drums that I will only use in the studio only because that I'm paranoid about them getting hurt live. Mm -hmm. How many, uh, how many snare drums do you typically take to a session? Well, okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at Tune Designer, I keep them. There's about 18 snares that I keep at Tune Designer, and I always bring about six or seven with me. So, if but it, it got ridiculous at one point. I have to admit, like when I was having to bring my kit and everything else, I'd bring at least 12 snare drums, which was insane. So now, if I go to do an outside session from Tune Designer or whatever, I'll bring. I'll try to think high, medium, low, and then maybe two other, like something. Something like a five five inch um, high you know higher pitch snare medium 
six and a half. Uh, then maybe for a low pitch, I'll bring a seven or an eight, and then maybe something something in between two other things. Maybe a wood and a metal. So well, and as I was talking earlier about your incredible ability of manage of playing the song just at the perfect tempo for the singer, you also have a really incredible ability to listen down to the reference track or to the demo and pick the snare drum that perfectly fits the song where we'll start tracking and i'm like yeah that's exactly what the song needed which then leads me to think how important does the sound of the snare drum dictate the overall vibe of the song it is it is i think with if everything stays the same let's say you keep the same time same symbols and everything else the snare drum can change the entire kit. Whatever mm-hmm. snare drum, it, it changes the vibe of the entire kit. Um, like I'll do here lately, what I've been doing is that there's a couple of female vocalists I work with, and I try to get snare drums that are out of their vocal range, mm-hmm. which usually means lower. So that way it's not clashing. Yeah. Um, a lot of, I just try to find something that fits in the voice. I'm certainly got, they used to do things like in the, I heard that those guys were tuning their drums to G's and A's and stuff like that. I don't have the temerity to do that. That would would drive me kind of crazy. But I don't, I will tell you this. I'll take enough snare drums to go, well, can you tighten it up a little bit? Like, well, no, let me just grab another drum because I I have found, I don't know about you, but I found that a snare drum lives in a certain range Mm -hmm. and there's a sweet, I mean, you can go up or down from that, but there's a sweet spot that that snare drum gives you just a mind around a ring there's just a amount, just a amount of fatness and so forth, and then you can muffle and do whatever. But I would just like if somebody says, "Man, I need a bigger, I need a bigger sound. Can you crank that down?" No, nope, I'm just going to grab another drum. Yeah, I'm going to grab another drum because I just really feel like drums live in a certain spot. And so, yeah, and there's nothing, there's nothing more frustrating than hear someone that just overtunes a, a snare drum and just Ooh. just chokes out all the tone of it. It just it that's one of my. You know, I'm in a Yamaha user group because I'm a big Yamaha fan now. And Yamaha at one point made these drums with the small, I call them the small chiclet lugs, or just the squares. And these guys would just, they just crank the drums down. They're trying to get a six and a half inch snare drum to sound like a piccolo. And that's not going to work. And and you're going to end up damaging the drum. And they move, the, the lugs popped off and all that. And I'm looking and there's the, the drum head is actually above the rim the bearing edge is actually even oh above the rim. it's like dude that you're it's no wonder uh i just i actually feel i always tune if somebody asked and, and there's a couple instances where it's different but each drum of mine is tuned to a medium tension and i let the drum dictate the voice now i do have an 8 by 14 inch uh recording custom birch drum that i have on the on the i have it sound like eagles you know birthday cake stuff Mm -hmm. but most of the time everything is medium tension not extreme high tension not extreme low and a six and a half inch snare drum brass snare drum will sound this way whereas a five inch cherry drum will sound this way it'll sound higher because it's a small it's the size of the drum i just dictate that that's that's, yeah that's what i do so how much do you think and i know we're getting into the weeds a little bit about this but i I think it's fascinating and I'm sure a lot of people are curious to know about this kind of stuff. How much do you how much weight do you put on gear versus touch for the tone? Um Yeah. I here's what I here here's a good example of that. Remember you know Wilson, right? Wilson Brass. Mm-hmm. Okay, so oh, yeah. I, I I've heard 
he had somebody come up and sit down on his gear. Remember that? And it sounded okay. Well, then Wilson played it, and it sounded totally fatter in, in the whole nine yards. I think I, I, I do think that, yes, gear is important. I, I, I will absolutely say that. However, I will tell you that you can take a, a less than expensive drum set and put good heads on there, and it's more about what you have in your it's, – it's more about a touch. I, yeah. I, I just totally believe that. I I think that, you know, when, you know, when we were being trained in the classical world, you're, you're taught touch. You're taught how to lift and, and draw the sound out of a drum. And I, I try to still do that in playing drum set and whatnot. I, I definitely think touch plays a huge part. You know, g- great gear is great gear and everybody makes great gear these days. I, I, I'm serious, but the difference to me is, you know, I've heard people play. I'm I'm real funny about people playing my cymbals because I think that that I heard this from Peter Erskine that he feels like, and I kind of agree that cymbals get used to a way that the molecules are moving, and they get used to a certain touch. And when you when you go away from that, it gets kind of weird. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so, yeah, I think touch is extremely important. I, I think that you know, especially if you hear like guitar players and stuff, man, there's there's a huge difference in, yeah. in guys like that. I mean, I've sat in, I, I've gone to hear a band and sat in to play bass with them. And without touching a single knob on the rig or on the guitar, it sounds completely different. And yeah. it's just, it's in your hands. It's in your touch and it's just in your note choice or, yeah. you know, it absolutely. It's, it, yeah, it's, um, I, if, if nothing else, I, one of the things I strive for is to make a be- make a nice, pretty sound on an instrument that is not known for making nice, pretty sounds. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I mean, a cymbal is not, a crash cymbal can be real harsh, but I think that you can still make a pretty sound on it. You don't have to, you don't have to just hit it lightly. I mean, if you make a nice crash, it's still going to make a pretty sound if you hit it properly. Well, and you, you also understand the idea of each limb being like a fader on a console and that you have to mix your limbs and you have to mix the instruments on the fly to get the right balance of kick to snare to toms and and then maybe even you're also your own compressor and that you have to it's you you be more consistent as you strike the drum so it doesn't have to be required of of who's mixing it. You don't have to move all that stuff. I will tell you this, and I'm certainly not one to toot my own horn because I don't like to do that, but a guy who's an engineer friend of mine uh, named Mark Balsigler, I had, at one point, I had put a, a, a GoPro camera up at the studio at, at Tune Design, and I had just r- let it run, and I posted it, and he made the comment. He said, man, that's just the GoPro video. He said, and how you mix yourself, it sounds like a, it sounds like, a, it just sounds like a drum set. It doesn't sound like hi-hat here and snare here and, you know, that that Fiddler Crab thing. Remember we, what's his name? Jack Bell used to talk about it, Fiddler Crab, where your mm-hmm. one hand was louder than the other. And if, if, if I've done nothing else over the years, I can at least do that. Oh, come on, man. You do it so well. No, and- I don't know about that, but I do, I do take pride in that, that the fact that I want the instrument to be balanced. And, you know, if it's a different, it's a louder snare drum that I may back off a little bit. Uh, if it's a certain groove, I may want to like try to like some of that R&B, some of that older R&B stuff. You want a little bit more hi-hat, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But in everything, and this is what I always grew up hearing, with jazz, it's top down, ride cymbal down. With rock and especially, you know, funk and all that, it's bottom up. 
Bottom up. Yeah, that's so, right. So there. So what? What is? So explain for to the fine folks about <laughs> Tune Designer and what that what that is and what you guys are doing because it's a really great cool concept. It, it is a cool concept, and I'm just blessed to be a part of it. John came up with this thing. John Johnson. He's the guy who owns the studio and owns Tune Designer. He came up with this concept to where we, and John's incredible, man. John's got a, you talk about an ear on this guy. He can take a vocal. So we get all kinds of demos, people singing into their phones, all kinds of things, people. And and he'll come up with chord structure and melody and so forth. And what we do is that we do have people in the studio, but most of the time we don't have people in the studio. So we'll get the demo. John will do all the pre-production and we'll come in and we'll cut their song. And either they can cut their vocal where they are, or they can come in and cut their vocal, and and we do that. That's what that's it's we, we give songwriters a, a chance to have their songs professionally recorded, and by the time it's all done, it's radio ready because his his uh, Red is mixing and Red is uh, Red Johnson his is John's nephew, and he went to he graduated from Georgia in the uh, in the music uh, uh, I guess production with a music production degree has a great ear and he mixes it. And that's what we do. I mean, literally we've had songs we were talking about the other day. We had a song, this lady sent a song in about her dog. It was a, he's part wolf. And so we came up with a song called wolf and uh, it was, it was really kind of neat. John's got a real good imagination. And again, he, you know, we chart, he charts everything out number chart form and he can, that's a five, that's a five, seven, you know, or five, whatever. He, he just does that. And, and we just go in, the three of us have played together as almost as long as you and I have played. Together. And so it's, it's, uh, it's you, John and is and Daniel Addison. Yeah, Daniel Addison. Yeah. Daniel great player. Bass. He's a great player. Dan, but Daniel play, play, plays bass and he's got, he plays guitar. And what mm-hmm. I'll either do is, so I'll try to get mine on the first or second pass, and I may go back and overdub a tambourine or a shaker, or maybe right now we've got it set up to where I've got an electronic setup, and so we're doing some of this new country stuff. You got to have the, the snaps and the clips and all that stuff. But anyway, <laughs> I've got a little bass drum pedal, so I can do the eight hundred eight thing, and we'll mix that. Um, and Daniel will overdub acoustic. I mean, we've got a resonator guitar there. We've got uh, the Nashville. The one tune to like the Nashville thing where the high the upper string mm-hmm. like tune on a 12 string or whatever. And then he's got a, a, a baritone and so forth. And then Rhett will either, Rhett plays steel and he plays dobro. And so we'll do it. The only thing, only instrument we can't do in house is, is fiddle or violin. You have to send that out. But, um, well, if somebody wanted a dither, a, a zither, I'd have to do that. <laughs> right. But, how many, how many, tunes are you guys cranking out a, a day per day yeah it's nine or ten but it's we can do that because we we the reason only reason why we can do that brad is because we know each other really well and john has done the pre-production mm-hmm. we may make a you know and we ask a lot of questions like well the client uh, can you give us an example of a song that you hear this being like and so they will and that gives us oh i hear kind of a blackberry smoke thing okay well that's easy got yeah that. and so i'll Pull probably a brass snare over and think that way. Think real, real, you know, that sort of thing or or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and so that makes it really easy as far as that goes. So, you know. And that's great. How many days a week do you do that? We do, we, we do Monday and Tuesday every other week. Every other week. And so that's cool. And then every, like, we do these things called tune-ready tracks. So we'll come up with a track that doesn't have vocals on it. And somebody can buy it and put their vocal on it and claim 
all the rights and everything else. It's their song. It's their thing. So what a cool concept this is. And I think so. And yeah. And I don't know if other, I don't know if other producers and engineers around the country are doing that, but man, that's just a, because I know it's hard for songwriters, depending on where they are geographically to, to get good players that can deliver their idea of the song the right way. And, uh, through this and through the magic of technology, they can send it and away you guys go. Absolutely. Now, I will tell you that that most of the time, we, like John will get something. And if he feels like it's something we can do, he'll do it. But now if it's, you know, if it's first of all, he won't do anything that's, you know, got bad words in it, for lack of a better word. He, 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 he just won't. John John's never had a drink in his life. He's never done any of that. I mean, he's just been he's his. He's played in church all his life. He played in Southern gospel. I don't think he's ever played a club or whatever. But so he's very convicted as far as that goes. Um, but he uh, he 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 will pick out if if somebody sends something in and they go, okay, this is in our wheelhouse. We'll do it. Um, but he's had some. John would he he wants to do it in a timely fashion. We are not going to sit there and beat a dead horse. You know, mm-hmm. if we have to go and fix something once or twice, that's fine. But if it requires a lot of fixing and the guys change his mind, blah, 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 John would just rather just give his money. Look, man, I don't think we're right for you. I'm going to give you your money back. That's that's great. You know, and 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 I I I commend him for for standing behind that the principle of that. I think so too. I think that you know we've all been there. We've had I had I'll I'll play drums for anybody, but I had a I had a client recently that I do stuff for in my studio. It just got to be kind of ridiculous. It, it just got to be. And I finally said, listen, man, you know, and then, then he said, well, I got a guy who will do it for 25 bucks a song. I said, well, then he's your guy. He's your guy. He is absolutely your guy because I can't do it for that. And especially with having to go back and correct everything. And that's part of the downside of not having people in the studio. You know, you if we did a session once and I thought we were done. I mean, it went on. It, it was late. It was the last last song of the day. And they had come and we had played. And I'm like, okay, I've played my stuff and I'm just waiting in my room. And I'm finally like, okay, well, I'm going to pack my stuff. I'm going to put my in-ear monitors up. And, and I came out and said, well, are we done? And the lead singer said, I was thinking about some fill. Uh. I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. And I mean, you know, it's like what we always say if there's people in there. We set the tempo. We set the key. Speak now forever. Hold your peace. Yeah. Because at, at this point, once we finish it, going back in course, there's always exceptions to that rule. I don't know. Did you ever hear the story about Boys of Summer, the, the Boys of Summer song that they had yeah. finished it and they were in the studio celebrating Nico Bolas and, and, and uh, Don Henley. They had finished it. And Bob Seeger came. In. He said, man, that's great. Why? Why did you, you should sing it higher. You, people, women love it when you sing it higher. And he was like, oh, no. And, and Don said, what can we do? So Nico had made a tape of the track and they went to Don's house all weekend and they found sing it higher, sing it lower, sing it higher, sing it lower. And finally, if they came up with that version, they had, they had had it finished. You know, it was a Lynn, it was a Lynn 9,000 track that, 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 all that drum stuff. But you know, Hey man, you should sing it higher. And I guess when Bob Seger tells you something, you should, you should probably listen, (laughs) you know, but it's like, you've done all that work and you should sing it higher. Girl, girls like it when you sing it high. <laughs> who who co-wrote that song? Um uh, Mike Campbell. 
Mike Campbell. I was trying to remember who. I thought it was Mike Campbell who yeah. wrote that song. He had that song for Tom Petty, and Tom Petty did not want it. Man. There you go. <laughs> who knew? Who knew, man? <laughs> but yeah, so with with this 10 Designer stuff, I've been very fortunate. John has been really good to us. Um, and it's, and it's good stuff. I still have stuff to do. You know, I will do stuff for them occasionally on weeks that we don't have stuff. If somebody comes in and they want a thing, I'll do stuff for, and I'll send the files to them from here on this thing. But normally we do everything there. So and you get to leave your gear set up and you just kind of roll in and they, do it. Yeah. They've got a, um, I acquired a pearl fiberglass kit similar to the one I had, but it has a 24 inch bass drum. 12, 14, 16 inch toms. And then I had some side racks that I had used on one kit and I just got tired of them. So I brought them. And so everything's in place. I walk in. Um, I even have a pedal. I walk in and I'll bring a couple, a few snare drums with me, but, and we'll go. I even have like innovative percussion is who I, who I use for my sticks and um, have a great relationship with them. I have an endorsement with them. I endorse their sticks and they send, you know, I have them send sticks there so that I don't have to bring sticks from home. It's perfect. Wow, man. man. That's a great, <laughs> what a great, uh, pretty sweet gig to have. It is you know? the only bad thing, Brad. Oh, getting there. <laughs> well, that, but Covington, if you're listening, your options for dining on Monday nights are, limited at best <laughs> and you can only eat longhorn just so often the applebee's there is not great the mystic grill there is overpriced and not great and you know everything else you're taking a chance on trust me just- well i i'm sure with the the, the the far reach of this podcast that the fine folks with the chamber of commerce will certainly get Something in their uh, suggestion box. We'll see. They they have a great restaurant there called City Pharmacy, and it's really great, except for it's not open on Monday. Come on now. Man, I'm serious. They're not open on Monday. So, you know, I don't know. Anyway, we'll see what happens. (laughs) But, yeah, it's it's, I've been real blessed with that, and I've got a good – the people who I work for on a regular basis, I work at Mount Perrin, play with the youth there. And I really like playing with the youth because I can go just like this. And for those, this is not video. So you guys don't see, but I'm wearing an Alabama hoodie and jogging pants and I'm dressed for church. That's great. We do three songs and it's awesome. And they're good folks. And they, I'm the oldest. I am the oldest guy in the building. Hands down. I'm the oldest guy in the building, but they're, they, I love playing with those guys. Is this Mount Perrin Central or North? Central. Central. I've never, I've never even been to the North Campus. Never even been. I think I played there one time, maybe two times. Yeah. I'm um, also a sub for the big room. That's what I call it. But, you know, I'm really content to play there. And then I've been working with uh, our buddy Kevin Wyglad at Creekside. Mm-hmm. You get to play with Brooks. Uh, he plays bass there. Yeah. And he and I think sometimes he plays keyboard and sometimes he plays guitar. You know, it's uh, it's too bad that he's so multi-talented that he uh, he's just kind of Swiss army knife, whatever they need of him. He's, he's such a great guy. He's so funny, man. So, yeah, I, I'm real. I have some real good relationships with some some good people. I, I, you know, last year I played at the at up at the casino up up at uh, Cherokee, and that was interesting. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think I'm not playing with one band in particular right now. I don't know that I I'd like to, but um, the landscape has changed a little bit, though. So you know, it's a little bit. And I, you know, I moved right in the middle of 
COVID and didn't kind of didn't experience the live music scene after everything reopened. But I've heard that that since then, just things are different as far as who has live music, what kind of live music, what they're doing. It, yeah, it just seems to be a very different landscape than it was before. Uh, it's different, and I will tell you that. If I hear, well, we're still trying to recover from COVID one more time, we'll smack somebody. <laughs> it's, it's now 2024. Okay. It's been four years. All right. Let's COVID. COVID for the most part is over. Although that my, my daughter-in-law and my granddaughter got it over Christmas. Um, but it's, it's, there's that. And I think that there's a tribute band thing going on, the, 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 that thing going on. And I, you know, I have my feelings about that because I was in a tribute band. I did the cheap chick thing for a while. Um, but, and I like what we did. We had a, a, we haven't talked about this, but we had a Beatles cover band. We were not a tribute band. That's right. It was not, it was never meant to be, nor was it ever a tribute band it was a cover band uh where we just played the music and we just we loved playing the music because I, I brad and i are both huge beatles fans i think yeah you know, if, you know, so but anyway so i think that there's the, the tribute things going on why do you think that that's such a is it economics does it allow a venue to kind of feel like they're getting a big name without having to pay for one i think that's absolutely correct and you know you got you got bands that you know Tom, they, there's Tom Petty tributes out there. There's John Mellencamp tributes out there. There's Journey, a Journey tribute. There's a, a a great you know departure. I mean, oh, they're great, man. I mean, and that guy uh, Brian, he sing, he he nails that stuff, and they sound awesome. And then there's a um, a, a friend of mine named uh, Bevan Davies. He owns a, a holistic, not holistic, but a pit stop for pets. But he's the drummer in Zozo. And buddy, I gotta tell you, if you want to see Led Zeppelin, besides going to see Jason Bonham's thing, mm-hmm. those guys are. Bev's got the orange drum set and orange orange vis lights and everything else. I think it's I think it's that, and I think that you know the people who want to spend that money, you know, remember th- these these are people that don't ex- some of these bands don't exist anymore. You know? Or or the original band has kind of become their own tribute band oh, because. Yeah. There might be one original member or zero original members, or they have a new lead singer. I yep. mean, it's incredible. It's, you know, you got to hand it to bands like Ario Speedwagon, who still have a few of their original guys, especially their lead singer. You know, Loverboy, that guy's still out there. Um, doing their- Sticks, they sound they, great. They sound great. And boy, did the, I saw them at, when we played at the casino. They were playing up in the event event room, and they sounded amazing. They're just they're just incredible. Um, but you know, all of our heroes are, are, are my all my heroes are in their seven. Yeah, it's. I remember back in like twenty seventeen, eighteen. There was a wave of losing a lot of our heroes, Ooh. and I I worry about that. Ha- it's going to happen again. I think that. I want to make sure that Paul McCartney's wrapped up in cellophane, <laughs> you know, and Stevie, yeah. Stevie Wonder and, you know, Elton John. And I think also, too, that it's real important that at some point you step away. You can't, you know, you can't do this forever. <laughs> it, it, that's it. What do you want your legacy to be? And and the way you go out is I don't want to be remembered for being uh, a has been. I don't you know? either. I, I, and I've told my family that. If it and and I'm I think I'm honest with myself enough to where if I felt that my plane was slipping then I would just go you know what it's been a good ride you know yeah it's, that's it and I think that it's important to do that so 
yeah, the, the landscape of the club thing has changed. Um, some clubs that existed don't exist anymore. That's just, you know, they, they just don't exist. They've, they, they didn't make it through COVID. Or, they've, or the club has changed their target audience and changed who they're, the clientele they're trying to attract, and that dictates the kind of entertainment that they book. Yeah, it's, it's frustrating sometimes. It really is. It's, it's, um, I don't know about you. I don't go out as much anymore. No. I, I, you know, in fact, on gigs where, uh, <laughs> on gigs where it's late, you know, the cool thing when I was playing with Mike is we played till like 11 mm-hmm. all the time, but like, you know, that whole adage of nothing good ever happens after midnight. And I, it's the truth. And I think also, and I'll say this, and if you're not live music fan out there, I may not be talking to about you, but I may be. Um, people are, have the the pandemic did not do anything for keeping folks sane, and and I'm telling you, people do crazy stuff these days. They they will walk on stage or just behave badly, and I just man, I don't, I, I just don't want to have any part of that. Yeah, I and I don't go out very much. Um, especially to hear music, but I just read about these stories of these entertainers that people jump on stage or they throw things at them. It's like, folks, stop it. Yeah, just, just, and, and it's not even, even at sporting events too, people do just silly, silly things. And I, I, I just would, imp- I, I implore everybody to use your head for more than a hat rack. <laughs> the, the, you know, just, just try to try to do. Think to yourself: Do I look good in stripes or aren't? Because folks aren't playing around anymore. No, and, and, and I, well, and I think the other part of that too is we live in a viral world where social media and your fifteen—it's not even fifteen minutes of fame; it's like fifteen seconds of fame yeah. now. Where someone is just wanting to be the top, the top video on YouTube or TikTok or whatever yep. that the kids are watching content on these days, and and I think that that's the motivating factor for a lot of these really silly decisions that people make. I, I don't disagree. I saw something the other, on this long, long line. I saw this meme the other day. If the Titanic would have happened today and it has all these people in the water hold their phones up videotaping, you know, the, the boat capsizing. It's like all these guys in the water have their have their phones and they're capturing the video of the, of the ship sinking instead of, you know, and then freezing to death. But they got to capture that video. You're exactly right. That's exactly it. So, look, I, well. I love social media. I, I think that it can be used good and bad. I definitely think that there's a whole lot of pluses to it. I definitely also think that there's some, some stuff that should not be attempted, but there you go. I agree a hundred percent. I I'm agree old. 100%. I, I am old. So there you have it. Yeah. We look, we, I do feel like, you know, I'm more and more turning into the get off my lawn guy, you know, and the, one of the old guys on the Muppet show, but it's okay. Hey, listen, I, I am known in the neighborhood and I live on that corner there with a four-way stop and people blow through that four-way stop. And I have gotten on the Fox Hall side and said, swear to God, I'm going to buy me a paintball gun and sit on my porch and go and light up whoever's passing through that stop sign. <laughs> so do it. I just, I'm stop it. So, stop but, yeah, it. but yes, I just, um, I have to tell you that I'm flattered that you wanted me to do this. I really am. Yeah. And I I just can't thank you for all of the years of camaraderie and music that we've made together. And I hope that there's more. So. 
Well, George, I feel the same way. I have, you know, it was like when I was lucky enough to get to meet you and start playing music with you and build a, a friendship with you. It, I mean, it, it changed the path of my life. I know, I, and I, I don't, I'm not overstating that when I say it, that it's just, you've inspired me to, to be a better musician and, and I'll always be grateful for what you, uh, what you've been for to me same here man and i and i gotta tell you i am so proud of your son i I really am i am so proud of him um i think that you know i remember when he was little and coming to gigs and it was was, i'm just so proud of him i think you've done you've done well with him and sophia they're they're just wonderful little wonderful people man well i feel the same thing about your crew i mean it's we all kind of when especially when we were really really playing a lot it was like a big family affair. We were all seeing each other a lot and you know, it's you know, they're they're like extended family members to me. I feel the same way about your your same, kids. Same here, man. Same here. So um but you know, life life is good. I think that if you look back on this and we go, Man, we got to play music with people who we love and play a lot of it and, and make a decent living at it, we've done okay. That's it. That's exactly it. We've done okay, man. Yeah, we have done okay. I can't well, George, I love you, buddy. I, you. I can't thank you enough for uh, spending the some time oh. just reminiscing and talking about things. This is uh, this has been a real treat. Did we cover everything you wanted to cover? We did. We did a great job for part one. Okay, we're going to say that, and uh, we're going to do a. We have a lot of other things that I want to talk about okay. down the road. Yeah. Um, and um, we're going to make that happen sooner than later. You know, all you have to do is call. That's all you got to do. Awesome. Awesome. Well, buddy, I love you and I, I appreciate it. I love you too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bandwitch Tapes. I'm your host, Brad Williams. The show's theme is called Playcation and was written by Mark Mundy. Drop me a line at the email address, thebandwitchtapes at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast. And while you're at it, please tell someone else about the show. Thanks for listening.